which has always been a thing that I think we battled within the Bitcoin space is like, how do we do it like the way that Bitcoin is originally intended? How do we do this properly, but also try and push to get this this freedom tech in as many people's hands as possible? I think in a lot of the community, there's been a push to do things too secure for the actual needs of most people. Keeping 12 words secure. The funny thing is, though, then people say it's very easy for me to secure these 12 words. And then they put them into somewhere secure, like, I don't know, LastPass. Privacy is more important than ever, although people seemingly want to give away all of their private information and share everything they're doing online. But in the future, as governments continue to crack down on social media, on your privacy, on your ability to transact, you're going to need tools to help keep yourself private. Seth for Privacy is an advocate in the space. He was the whistleblower on Ledger Recover and has gained a major voice now in the space, giving really good, solid ideas on how you can live a normal life, but also remain private. That's dope. That's dope. You've seemingly been on the circuit, though. You have your own podcast, of course, focused on privacy. Mm-hmm. Seems like you gained a lot more popularity and and <laughs> and fame and people start noticing you after the Ledger incident yeah. lately. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, definitely was surprised that I think my thread kind of became the thread on Ledger Recover. Um, just because it was as soon as they announced it, I was like, this seems like a terrible idea and wanted to write up my thoughts and just kind of took off, which is pretty cool. You want to know what's crazy is that maybe four days before that, I interviewed mm-hmm. Pascal standing mm-hmm. in this very same room, the CEO of Ledger, and my podcast with him came out maybe an hour before your threat <laughs> or like, you know, an hour before they made the public announcement, it came out. Yeah. And, you know, we superficially talked about it in the podcast that I had with him. I've spoken to him a, a number of times mm-hmm. and it just blew right over my head. Right. So like to your credit to see it immediately, I was quote kind of like, cool, you can recover your uh, phrase and Ledger has been a great company. I didn't even think beyond the fact that there could be issues there. Maybe just talk about what those issues actually were when you saw the Ledger Recover announced. Yeah, I mean, I think for most people, they'd kind of been teasing out that Ledger Recover concept for a while. I think they had they had revealed some of it to like Wired or something like that. So people had like a loose idea of what Ledger Recover would be, but then I think it kind of ended up being two interesting pieces that made it a more painful launch for them is that they accidentally leaked it early with some details uh, that got people starting to think about like maybe there are some problems with this approach before Ledger like had their proper kind of PR campaign in full swing. Um, but when they did reveal it, I think the the really big thing that jumped out to me is it it revealed that there's a there's a big values difference, I think, between Ledger as a company and most Bitcoiners. Now, obviously, that doesn't necessarily hold true for everybody within Ledger or anything like that. I'm not speaking about specific people there, but it showed that I think a lot of their values are around driving profit for them and driving mass adoption at all costs, which has always been a thing that I think we've battled within the Bitcoin space is like, how do we balance doing things the the right way? How do we do it like the way that Bitcoin is originally intended? How do we do this properly, but also try and push to get this this freedom tech in as many people's hands as possible because it, it ultimately is something that brings freedom. Um, but when I looked at Ledger Recover, the, the biggest problems are that when you go ahead and use the service, uh, and it is opt-in, so clarifying that for everybody. I know that was an initial confusion that people thought it was something that was enabled for everybody. It is theoretically opt-in, but the big problems are it is closed source in nature. And so for people who aren't familiar, there's this concept of of open source and a free and open source movement. That means that the things that we build, 
for those who adhere to that that idea, should build them out in the open, build them in a way that others can build on top of them, review what's going on. Uh, Ledger as a company has been closed source with the majority of the firmware on Ledger and a lot of their software for a very long time. So it's never been a core piece of what they do. But because Ledger Recover is closed source, we can't verify any of the way that it works in practice. Uh, They did say they're going to change that and open source the protocol before it actually goes live after all the pushback that they got. Um, But that's an important caveat. Uh, The other main problem is this reveals to people that Ledger could and always could have, in theory, gotten the seed phrase off of their devices because the the basic way that Ledger Recover works is you connect it to this Recover app, you log in, you give over a, a selfie and do this identity verification. And then once you do that, you uh, confirm a prompt on your Ledger and your seed phrase is encrypted on the Ledger, again, theoretically, because it's closed source, but I would expect that it is how they do it. And then that's uploaded to Ledger and then to other custodians. Um, so that opens up a lot of other risks where you have to now give up all of your personal identifying information to these companies and to a third-party broker to be able to use this service. Uh, And then you've ultimately changed the threat model really around your Bitcoin. Because not only now do you have to secure your ledger, but even if your ledger is securely at home, no one gets it, no one gets access to it, no one gets access to your seed phrase. If uh, the U.S. government, for instance, went to Ledger and their other custodians who are all kind of within the the realm of of subpoena, they could ask them to give over the private keys of a specific individual. And those companies could easily collaborate and give that over. Um, So it opens up risk of loss of Bitcoin, theft of Bitcoin if a company like Ledger was hacked since they do own the, the decryption keys for these shards. Uh, opens up exposing your personal data to these custodians as well. Um, and really showed people that Ledger is focused on mass adoption at all costs and was willing to kind of sacrifice the things that people thought that Ledger stood for in order to achieve that. It's a difficult situation because, yeah. obviously, I mean, I think, though, that there are very few people who deeply care about their privacy and mm-hmm. securing their Bitcoin in a manner that this would offend them. Right. Mm-hmm. Even finding out, yes, there was a, this uproar among a certain part of the community. But I would argue that most people who will come in when we have mainstream adoption will be leaving their coins on exchanges or want them like custody that Fidelity or BNY Mellon or, or something. Right. And yeah. so, how do we actually even talk about mainstream adoption if our expectation is that people will care so passionately about their privacy and custody that they will go through these? absurd lengths. And it is absurd, to be honest. Listen, and I'm very, very, very passionate about self-custody. I have multi-sig. My stuff is geographically dispersed. Like I'm very passionate about it, but I also think I'm nuts. And when I tell the people in my life what I do to secure my Bitcoin, the few who I trust, they think I'm nuts, right? So where's the happy medium there? I mean, maybe Ledger Recover is the happy medium because it's opt-in and people are comfortable with that level of risk. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of two main responses I'd have to that. Um, one of them is that I think the the difficulty of self-custody has somewhat been overblown because I think in a lot of the community, there's been a push to do things too secure for the actual needs of most people. Um, uh, I think a, a really good example of that is multi-sig and that multi-sig is a fantastic tool. It's one of the most kind of unique aspects of Bitcoin because of all of the things that it enables us to build on top of it, the way that it works for companies, uh, the way that it helps specifically high net worth individuals. 
But multi-sig adds a lot of complexity. And I think a lot of times we've seen Bitcoiners pushing new entrants to the space straight into like, oh, well, you need like a multi-sig setup, two out of three, three different hardware wallets. And like, yeah, yeah, it's not doing that. They're they're not doing that like their first day. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think that's part of it is that a lot of people have kind of been scared off initially and said, like, I can't self custody, rather than approaching it from a much more simplistic perspective of really worst case self custody is keeping 12 words secure. That's pretty much it. So that's not necessarily easy. Um, but it's also not this crazy high barrier of entry. But I think even when it comes to that, there's some unique ways that we can start to abstract away from seed phrases in a way that doesn't give up your seed phrase to like to a third party in plain text or that doesn't do something that you don't have total control over. So there's some interesting ways where we can do things like we can uh, encrypt a seed phrase locally with a key that you control using open source software that anyone can verify how it works and then store it into an encrypted in something like a Bitwarden or something like iCloud Keychain and a tool that by default makes sure that only you have access to that no matter, no matter what, even if the company that you're choosing to store this with got a subpoena or something like that. They would have no technological ability to turn over this data. So I think there's some really unique approaches we can take. And it's something we've been working on at Foundation, especially for like uh, mobile wallets, because there's, there's a different threat model for mobile wallets than like your your long-term wealth that you'd store in something like a hardware wallet. But even that worst case of keeping 12 words secure, I don't think is really that crazy when people kind of come down to it and realize that most people are not needing to protect against someone knowing they have Bitcoin, knowing their address, coming to their house and hitting them with a $5 wrench. Where That's where really kind of the multi-sig concept starts to help and that there's no one that's person me. you can go to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean people like public, you, you have a public legitimate. figure in your space and you're sitting yeah. here having conversations about Bitcoin, you obviously have to go to extraordinary lengths to uh, secure it. Uh, although I think that many won't. I, I totally agree with your point. The funny thing is, though, then people say it's very easy for me to secure these 12 words. And then they put them into somewhere secure, like, I don't know, LastPass <laughs> or, right? And, and the the problem to me here, and I'm not looking to solve it here today, is that the trusted companies and sources, there's always a hacker who's trying to get ahead of them. And you have to still trust that they're going to be able to secure things. I mean, we saw the ledger data breaches in the past mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. we're saying that ledger maybe can abstract away your keys who can you trust like that's the thing is every time you see one of these trusted parties a last pass or one of these get hacked you think well can i trust the one that i'm using or should i be questioning even the most secure by consensus yeah and i think it i mean it comes down to this idea of trust minimization like this idea of being totally trustless unless you're a brilliant super shadowy coder and you can read and write all types of code you're not going to be able to verify everything from scratch but what we can do is we can minimize the trust that we're placing in these entities so when it comes to things like hardware wallets when it comes to things like software wallets when it comes to things like uh, tools that, that leverage encryption that only you can decrypt into an encryption I think it's really important that we use the tools available to us to minimize that trust. And and open source as a movement and as an ideology and as a, a technical thing is a huge piece of that because it means yeah. that we don't have to just blindly trust the things that are being told to us. With, with Ledger Recover, at least until they open source it, if they actually open source all of that, we have to blindly trust what Ledger is saying. 
with something that's open source, we can verify ourselves or for most of us, I mean, We're I'm gonna not have to a have somebody either. verify it, right? Yeah, I yeah. don't think any 99.99999% of people can't verify it themselves, which then of course leads you to have to trust someone who can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just to me, it's this endless game of trust. I think it's very clear <laughs> that open source is superior to closed source, no question mm -hmm. there. And listen, you can't, uh, can't hold everyone's hand through everything. I just think that it's a, still a major challenge that's yet to be solved on the security and custody side. And it is probably very confusing and disorienting for new people. Because even if you come in and you say, okay, I'm going to buy a ledger, then you get like bombarded by the entire community <laughs> telling you not to do that, right? When six months ago, people would have said, buy a ledger. Yep. Yep. Things have, things have gotten more complex. But I I mean, there there are good ways to do this stuff in a way that does minimize that trust. And I think that's the, the piece we have to fight for. Yes, we're never going to get to this Again, unless you're like some brilliant dev, we're not going to get to this total trustlessness. But what Bitcoin really does for us and what the tools that we build around Bitcoin need to do is minimize the trust we have to put in third parties, keep things open source and transparent, just like Bitcoin does. And that gives the the user ultimately power uh, rather than the, the company or the provider themselves. Is there anything compelling you've seen outside of the existing model of seed phrases and private keys that you think could be compelling or anything that allows you to secure those in a manner where you're basically don't have access to them, don't need them and don't need to be able to recover them? Yeah, I think when you're talking about something like a mobile wallet, I think there's very compelling options. Like what I, I briefly mentioned before, it's something we do with with Envoy, our mobile wallet that we call Magic Backups. And it's, it's in essence... Your seed phrase, you generate on the device, everything is open source, totally transparent. And then if you choose to use something like Magic Backups, it encrypts your seed phrase and then puts it into your iCloud keychain, which only you have access to, not even Apple has access to that. Uh, and then we encrypt all of the data about the wallet, like wallet names, uh, transaction labels, all that kind of stuff. And we send that to our server, but an encrypted method that, again, we can't read, only you can decrypt with your seed. So while that does open up some potential threat models for a mobile wallet, it's really ideal because you can onboard someone to Bitcoin in 30 seconds. They don't need to understand the concept of seed words. Everyone already has, basically everyone in the world already has either an Android phone with a Google account or an iPhone uh, with an Apple account. And both of those have default functionality to do end-to-end encrypted storage of this data in a way that not Android or not uh, Google or Apple can actually access. So I think that's a good solution for mobile wallets. But that is probably not how you want to do your your long term. It's not how you want to wealth. secure millions of dollars, right? Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. And and for that, I think I think something interesting, and this is something that I think needs to be iterated on more, is social recovery. So kind of taking the same concept of ledger recover, but doing it in again an open source way, but doing it where the custodians of the the shards of your seed or of the the pieces to be able to recover that are people that you know, and doing it in a way where they can just install an app. Uh, set it up, connect to you, you set this up, and it sends the, the shards. So ledger recover with trusted parties rather than a third party that you're unaware of or something that's closed source. That's an yeah. interesting idea. Yeah, I, th I think that that would be a good fit and that lets you leverage your social circle for the ability to right. recover funds and not trusting any one of them. So even like, I mean, say you do like a, a five of eight shards or something, you would need five of your friends and family to collaborate to try and recover that. Um, so you would do some model that, that protects you against them being malicious. And then obviously you're the one choosing the custodian. You're not forced into this choice of these three custodians who all have a financial contract together, like with Ledger. So I think that's a really interesting alternative. 
Yeah, it is because even if you have multi-sync, people realize then you go down the path of what happens if something happens to me and I want to hand this off to my wife or I want my oh, yeah. kids to understand it. You still have to have people you trust, even if you make it a complex scavenger hunt. You have to have people you trust who eventually are going to have access to these things and have mm -hmm. access to your wallet because mm -hmm. one day you might not be there. What do you think of MPC? Uh, I think it will be interesting as it's proven out more uh basically as it gets implemented to more things and we see it more kind of in the wild. I think it does hold a lot of very powerful uh, potential for this type of thing um, and would, would solve some of the potential problems with social recovery, uh, with people being able to, to collaborate against you. Um, yeah, it would be interesting. It's not something I've dug into too deeply. I know a couple wallets use it, but the two that I know of are closed source, so it's hard to verify exactly how they're doing things. But that's where another like if these companies are building out in the open with open source code, it lets the rest of the community, the rest of the Bitcoin ecosystem, see what they're doing, iterate on it, build their own versions of it. And it it, it breeds this environment that is so much better for the user because there's there's so many more people being able to build these things out. It's not something where I want it to be proprietary. So that would definitely be an interesting angle to to explore more in the future. I mean, you go by Seth for privacy. So clearly this isn't just about self-custody of your Bitcoin, <laughs> right? You have, obviously have a passion for this. Where does this come from and why is it so important to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, the the idea of personal privacy didn't mean anything to me until I got into Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's it's one of the very interconnected rabbit holes that once you get into Bitcoin, you start to think about now that I'm in control of my money, how do I get to be in control of the rest of my life, my food supply, my privacy, my security, all of these things start to become more, I think, interesting to you as you dive into Bitcoin. And for me, it was, I got into Bitcoin and then I actually got into Monero shortly after that. Uh, and Monero is a very privacy focused cryptocurrency, open source, there's a lot of the same ethos as Bitcoin, um, but a bent really wholly on digital cash and, and privacy. And, and that community is so privacy focused that they really took me under their wing and showed me that Financial privacy is essential, and that really provides the rest of the freedoms that we can have as humans. Um, but there's also this, this broad need for personal privacy because everything that we do is online these days, literally everything. The devices that we have in our house, your light bulbs are often internet connected. Like there's, there's so much of our lives that is being just constantly pushed into the internet that we we really are in an environment that we've never been in as a society, as a civilization. I mean, if you look 50 years ago, no one had these problems because the worst case situation was your ago. phone was tapped. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. really even 20 yeah. years ago. And so we're in this place where people wittingly or unwittingly are putting all of their lives data on the internet and don't understand the ramifications of that. And we're only starting to really come to grips with the problems that are there. So for me, it's become a passion because privacy is not just something to attain on its own. Just like I don't think financial sovereignty is a thing to attain on its own with Bitcoin, but it's it's the means to an end. And the, the means to an end, the 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 how is that we use tools like Bitcoin, like privacy preserving technology, like open source code to rekindle human freedom in a digital age and to do it in a way that is resistant to tyrannical governments, resistant to central bank digital currencies, resistant to uh, all of the things that are, are pressing around us uh, in our in our time right now. And and these tools are ultimately the ways that we we fight back and we we get the power back in the hands of the individual rather than the corporation or the government. Well, you invoked Monero. So now I know they're tapping this conversation. Uh, <laughs> we know how much they, whoever they are, uh, love Monero, but you don't hear about Monero as much anymore. You know, listen, I was an entrant into the 
Bitcoin crypto world in maybe 2016, early 2017. And Monero was the talk of the town at that point. Privacy coins mm -hmm. in general, but Monero, even for traders, just trading it for price. I've seen that it's sort of been pushed aside, banned, whatever you want to call it in a lot of places. Is that still a pretty rabid community? Is it still a thriving project? I really haven't kept up with it. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think depending on kind of what the current news is, you'll see Monero mentioned more or less. Um, but it's it's a, a rapidly growing community. The project has been continuing to to iterate and improve on the the protocol itself, the, the implementations. Uh, a lot of the ecosystem has grown. A lot of merchants have started to adopt it. So it's definitely something that's vibrant. It's just, I think it it falls by the wayside a lot of times because there's a lack of a focus on personal privacy and on it's financial like privacy. <laughs> yeah, I mean the number one rule of Monero is never <laughs> tell anybody that you're using Monero. Which which is also a problem. It's all it's all these very very privacy oriented individuals behind it. So a lot of times the kind of the the social and the marketing aspects have fallen behind. So that's where a lot of the work that I've done in the past four or five years has been to try and help out Monero in that aspect because I'm not a developer but I'm technically minded. And so bringing the concepts of Monero into the real world and also looking at what does Monero do? How does it do it? Why does it do it? And how can we bring these concepts, if not these specific tools, back into something like Bitcoin and help to improve Bitcoin at the same time? I mean, as a Bitcoiner, there's a lot of them who would say Monero is a shitcoin. <laughs> Don't touch it because it's not called Bitcoin, right? But it seems like you get away with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think I think part of it is... I, I have never been like price focused or speculation focused. Right. So when I'm it. talking about it, I'm I'm only talking about these tools, Bitcoin and Monero, as tools for freedom. And so ultimately when I'm I'm talking about them, I try to be very nuanced with Monero. There are there are different choices made in Monero that may make it a better or worse tool for specific use cases than Bitcoin. Um and I view it as really a an immensely powerful tool for freedom for today because it's very easy to use in a privacy preserving manner. And that's something that's tricky with most other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin included. It's not easy to use Bitcoin in a privacy preserving way, which is, is something I'm passionate about fixing. And, and I mean, yeah. a foundation, we're passionate about fixing it, but it is really kind of, I think the, the coming storm within Bitcoin is the kind of privacy wars and how we're going to handle improving this because the freedom that we can get from a financial tool like Bitcoin will ultimately be limited if there's not a way to use it in a privacy-preserving manner because the, the people who want to shut us down or to, to take away freedoms will be able to see how it's being used and who's using it uh, and and crack down on a lot of the the kind of the edge cases, the, the ecosystem, the merchants, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think a lot of it is really just that when you look at Monero, its ethos is very similar to Bitcoin, fair issuance, proof of work. Uh, it has a different approach to uh, emissions. So it's not a, a hard cap like Bitcoin has 21 million. Monero has 18.4 million, but then a tail emission. So there's there's certainly some differences, some trade-offs, but the approaches taken share a lot of similarities to especially how Bitcoin was started. I know a lot of the ethos now depends on kind of what communities you're in within Bitcoin, but it really shares a lot of the the cypherpunk roots with with Bitcoin and what Satoshi and, and Hal Finney and all of those were, were working on from from day one. I'll take it. I accept it. You're, 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 you're allowed. <laughs> you're allowed to like whatever you want. I got here. the pass, the, the, the hall pass to talk about. Uh, trust me, I'm not the guy giving out uh, Bitcoin maxi uh, appropriateness passes. I, I, I get on the other side of that community quite, quite often myself. But it's funny because one of those sort of prevailing anti-Bitcoin narratives from governments and 
has always been that it's for criminals and it's to be private. But then you see the FBI constantly tracking down anyone who uses Bitcoin for crime so much easier than if they had used cash. So, I mean, isn't that just one of those nonsensical narratives that doesn't really hold water anyways? That, I mean, your wallet is private. Who owns it? But the transactions, I mean, it's literally a transparent public ledger. Yeah. And I mean, there are certainly ways to use Bitcoin in a way that that does preserve your privacy, especially like the folks at Samurai Wallet have built out fantastic tooling that helps you to to use it in a privacy observing way. Lightning Network provides some some potential improvements to privacy, depending on a lot of factors. So there's certainly ways to to use it in a privacy preserving manner. But the the boogeyman of terrorism or drugs or whatever the latest fad is for the government to use to target tools that it doesn't like will continue to come at Bitcoin, whether or not they're true or whether or not they're true with a very small doesn't percentage. Matter. No, it, it doesn't matter. All they matter. have to do I is mean, say it, then 99% of people who know nothing are going to believe it. Yeah. And if you if you want to talk about what tools are used to commit crimes, the US dollar and banks are the main source of money laundering, of uh, drug-related crimes. All of these things are, are driven by the dollar, not by Bitcoin. It's a very, very, very small percentage of, of those things. And even if a technology enables some sort of bad actors, that doesn't mean that the overall impact for humanity is is lost. I mean, if you look at literally any technology that we use today, <laughs> the first adopters were almost always criminals. And then people started to understand, okay, this thing actually has a, a broad impact. For <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. So I, I think it's something where they will continue to use these, these boogeymen to try and either scare people off of Bitcoin or attack it. And I think that the current attacks, especially against Bitcoin, are coming in the ability to to trade Bitcoin peer to peer with other people. It's been an attack yeah. that they've been, I mean, they've been doing local for a Bitcoins. while. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies that were used for that have folded. I just always laugh at it because it's like a criminal's never used an iPhone, right? If a criminal makes a <laughs> yeah. call to do some criminal things on an iPhone, uh -huh. do we ban the yeah. iPhone as the technology because it enabled them to... Nobody would ever, ever float that notion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just patently absurd and, and a silly narrative. I want to talk about something you said before, though. You were talking about mm -hmm. privacy and individuals giving up their privacy. You said wittingly or unwittingly. Seems like 99.9% of the time it's wittingly. And either people or, or someone believes they care about privacy literally while like using their face on their phone to you know open it up, right? We know that you're, if you're using these technologies that you probably have minimal privacy. Then you get this pushback from the government with things like the Restrict Act, right? Which is skinned as banned TikTok, but actually <laughs> is violating every privacy you could possibly imagine online and attaching huge monetary and potential jail time penalties to it. The Restrict, restrict Act was huge talk a couple months ago. It seems to have disappeared, but it hasn't. So yep. have you been looking at that? Have you been tracking it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the... The whole crux of what the U.S. government and what pretty much every Western government wants to do is have privacy for themselves and not for you. They want to prevent data from getting into the hands of their enemies, but they want to collect all of that data. I mean, even this last week, we've seen that the U.S. government has been collecting very, very sensitive information on citizens illegally for years and storing it for their own use later on. So this is very much something where... The U.S. government has shown that they do not care about your privacy. They just care that they have all your data and China doesn't or Russia doesn't or whatever the, the latest boogeyman there is. Um, so when you look at something like the Restrict Act, you can really boil it down to it would become the Great Firewall of America. Just like we have the Great Firewall of China where they have 
complete control and censorship capabilities over what their citizens view on the internet, what their citizens use as far as apps, how their citizens communicate. The the proposed legislation in the Restrict Act essentially opens that door for the U.S. and being able to, to quickly censor and ban any specific app or communication method that they want. And then, like you said, impose crazy fines, crazy jail time. I think it was, uh, I can't remember exactly. It was like $250,000 in 20 years. I, yeah. I'm not looking at it, but it was for something using that a VPN. Absurd, for using a VPN. Yeah, for using yeah. a VPN to access, <laughs> to access a site that was, the thing is that the, which I think has become the norm for government and regulators as well when they're tagging crypto, but to be exceptionally vague. Right. Anything <laughs> that is a foreign government, uh, you know, just could, a million things could fall into that bucket. They never mentioned crypto, but you could certainly apply almost any crypto to oh, yeah. how they were saying it. You could apply any foreign website and never did it mention TikTok. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if, like, if, if you, you want to ban at... TikTok, ban TikTok. Yeah. So, like, which, by the way, I'm, I disagree with. Right. Because yeah. I, I, I don't think you should ban a social media platform if people are willingly using it. But just pass something that says TikTok specifically is, you know, a Chinese spy app that is people are, that they're using to spy and you would like to ban that. Don't say we're going to ban everything into the future that we deem inappropriate for you. <laughs> I mean, it's real, really 1984 Big Brother stuff. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it, too, is is setting the precedent is an immensely important part of it. So if the government is able to get through something that allows them to ban TikTok, even if it was more tame than the Restrict Act, that opens the door. Because if you can if you can argue and pass something that bans a specific app because it does something that you don't like, you can ultimately do that for anything. And I mean, we've we've seen that even within cryptocurrency when we talk about like privacy preserving tools. The Tornado Cash sanctions by yes. the U.S. Treasury were absolutely Reason. insane, far beyond anything we've seen. And they they do the same thing in that they they use this boogeyman of North Korean hackers are using this to to get funds through using the the privacy preserving tools of Tornado Cash. But even them in their own press releases, they could only link something like seven percent of the usage to these North Korean hackers. So ninety three percent of the users of Tornado Cash are perfectly legitimate as far as the U.S. government was concerned. But they still sanctioned the entire tool, and that's something that they will they will gladly shut down the privacy of individuals in order to shut down one specific perceived threat to national security, uh, even if there's not really a, a threat to national security. It's a, it's a crazy thing, and it's something where, thankfully, we still have some control over the government in the U.S., but we will we'll lose of. that if we allow things like the Restrict Act through, because the ability to organize, the ability to protest, the ability to communicate can quickly fall through, and something like that is is reality. Yeah, giving away your freedoms is a very slippery slope. And mm-hmm. I find specifically with privacy, it's a one-way street. And ne- you, you never get it back. Yep. Nope. And we saw, we've seen that with COVID with a lot of the restrictions that once you give up those specific powers, depending on where you're at, it's something where the government is very, very good at adding on new powers to themselves and very, very bad at removing them. So it's very, very unlikely that when something is granted to the U.S. government or any other kind of modern government, they're going to relinquish that when the whatever the pressing issue or, or boogeyman of the time is. At least they used to call it cool, like, go America names like the Patriot Act and <laughs> yeah. stuff. Now, now it's just like restrict act. <laughs> the next act will be you, we're watching you act. <laughs> The, uh, the PR team for that one, I don't think, was very strong. <laughs> no, questionable. So listen, uh, knowing that this is likely the truth about our governments and all governments and knowing which direction this is headed, what are some very basic pragmatic things that the individual can do 
think we all, everyone listening to this knows buy Bitcoin, maybe these things. But what other things can people do to help, at least at the very basic level, protect their privacies, not give it up to your government and corporation at every turn? Yeah, I mean, I think to add one thing onto the concept of buying Bitcoin, it would be, if at all possible, buy Bitcoin on a an exchange that doesn't require your your uh, personal information to be able to sign up that doesn't require you to give over that that KYC data as it's often called because if you don't do that if you're able to avoid giving over your personal information bitcoin actually becomes usually a, a good enough tool for privacy because there's no direct link between your identity and your on-chain activity so that's kind of the i think the first step and that gives you a, a huge advantage over the rest of people using bitcoin through KYC exchanges like Coinbase or whatever. Um, so I think that's an important one when you're looking from the the Bitcoin perspective. When you're looking broader personal privacy, um, some of the the biggest ways that you can have some some large impact on on what data you're putting out into the world without really sacrificing a lot of quality of life is using a, a better privacy preserving browser. There's some really good tools from Brave Browser to uh, Molvod uh, introduced their own. It's a little bit more hardcore, so it's probably more hardcore for most people. But something like Brave Browser or Firefox with some tuning will allow you to block a lot of the tracking that's common online, allow you to block a lot of the the privacy invasive methods that are just everywhere on the internet. Um, So that's a really big one. Uh, I think past that, using privacy preserving messengers like Signal is a, a really big step forward. It's something where... It can be tricky initially to get friends and family on there if they're not already using it. Um, but once you do get them on there, it, it provides a, a large privacy boost because the things that we talk about with the people that we we love and respect and are friends with and those intimate details are, are very useful against us in the future, potentially. Not necessarily, but potentially. And even unwitting comments can be something that's problematic in the future. So being able to have that communication in peace, in privacy, also just allows us to be more honest, to be more human, to be more transparent where we're not thinking about what will the Facebook employee who's reading this messenger message say? How will they social engineer me to SIM swap me (laughs) and steal the very Bitcoin that I was using for my privacy? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but I've been SIM swapped multiple times. I mean, just, and the reason is because they socially engineer you with that Mm -hmm. very kind of information or by looking at your Facebook page and and they uh, swipe you. But I want to talk about how you can buy Bitcoin in the United States without KYC AML, without, being yep. concerned about being in violation of some future regulation that we know is probably uh, coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the best ways right now, there's really, I think, three of the most important tools for, for U.S. people specifically are RoboSats, BISC, and something called AgoraDesk. Um, so let's go in that order. So RoboSats is a, a very, very cool way to purchase Bitcoin using the Lightning Network specifically. In a way that doesn't reveal your personal identity, gives you very, very good privacy, um, but allows you to to trade cash for Bitcoin or gift cards for Bitcoin or Zelle for Bitcoin or Cash App, lots of different payment methods, and be able to to buy Bitcoin from someone else, get it directly into your Lightning wallet without ever connecting your identifying information. It's it's really straightforward to use. They have their own uh, Android app that you can install. They have a website, though it operates over Tor, so there's a little bit of a hurdle because you'll have to get the Tor browser to use it properly. Um, but that's a really cool tool that's been been taking off and becoming a lot more popular. Um, the second one is BISC, which is a, 
It's a little bit more hardcore, so it can be harder to recommend for new people to Bitcoin. If you're already an experienced Bitcoiner, it's not going to be daunting at all, I don't think. But uh, it, it has that same purpose where it's totally decentralized, a little different than RoboSats and others, and that no one runs it. It's run on a, a node of a volunteer or a network of volunteer nodes, just like Bitcoin. Um, and that lets you, again, find other people who are selling Bitcoin. You find one that's using the payment method you want to pay with. You pay, they transfer the Bitcoin, and there's security mechanisms in place to protect you so that you you can't lose your fiat and not get the Bitcoin or something like that. Um, and then the third is is called Agora Desk. Uh, and it's it's really a, a re-implementation of local Bitcoins. It's very similar. So if you're familiar with local Bitcoins in the past, it'll be very familiar to you. Um, and it's a, a website you can go to either kind of ClearNet or over the Tor network, uh, set up an account. And then again, just find other Bitcoiners who want to sell Bitcoin, buy directly from them. And that's normally how it works. In order to avoid having to give up your personal ID. You usually have to buy directly from other people. And there is no law specifically against that right now. Uh, there have been some right cases of them <laughs> prosecuting people who do like massive volumes, like $300,000 or something in, in Bitcoin a year. Um, so if you're doing it for regular purposes, there's absolutely no no law against it at the moment. But that that is, again, where privacy is so important and where you are protecting yourself a lot in that if for some reason the U.S. government went crazy and made a law that you cannot trade Bitcoin with another U.S. citizen, uh, which would be crazy, but I know that they would love to do that in the future. Yeah. Doing this now, rather than starting with a KYC exchange, starting to learn these tools and use them now gives you much better privacy and much more uh, plausible deniability around that in the future when you use them and you're you're not linking your ID directly. And then you may want to also learn more advanced kind of privacy tools like Samurai Wallet or Sparrow Wallet to, to learn how to gain further privacy. Uh, but that's not necessary for most people, but it's something that everyone should look into and start to get comfortable with as well. Yeah, I mean, listen, the government wants to know if you have a foreign bank account. The government certainly needs to know every stock and every asset that you own. I don't think it's a far leap for them to view Bitcoin through that same lens. So even if you buy it in a non-KYC manner, they're going to want to know one way or another that you have it. And if oh, yeah. you don't somehow report it, that's going to be some sort of violation in the future, if I had to guess. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, I'm not recommending tax evasion or anything like that. No, and, I mean, right now, they, they would require you If you buy it, you it. don't sell it. It's not even mm -hmm. a taxable transaction. So, I'm, yeah, I, I'm not talking buy, even never about sell. tax evasion. It's just, yeah, <laughs> that's why you can never sell, guys. It's fine. It's, it's, <laughs> it's you for never, the taxes. ever sell Bitcoin. <laughs> Doesn't like it. I, I remember having Corey from Swan on, and he was like, we don't have a sell button on Swan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have to call us it's a one-way street <laughs> yeah so it, it only comes in never ever ever goes out so i mean it's a pretty scary world you know and uh, once you really start going down this rabbit hole it's hard to keep the balance of being sort of fearful about this or thinking about it all the time and actually living a normal life but it does really not seem like there's a path to more privacy in life with the evolution of this technology and there's just too much technology and too many ways for them to track us. They just couldn't do that in the past. You talk about 50 years ago, like you said, they literally would have had to come in and tap your phone and you would have happened to have the conversation that they needed to hear on that specific phone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is easy to be demoralized. I think that's one of the most common problems when you start to, to dive down the privacy rabbit hole. That's why a lot of times my first recommendation to people wanting better personal privacy is find a community who shares your views so that you can have people to to back you up and to talk to you and talk you down from the the crazy privacy things that might make your life too difficult or too closed off from the world. Um, so it's definitely hard, but I think there's also, there are so many reasons for optimism as well. 
I mean, Bitcoin is the first and foremost reason for optimism in that even though governments are going crazy, even though uh, the financial policy in the world is insane, even though they're cracking down on the usage of cash, tools like Bitcoin break that open for the world. They break that open for us in the US. They break that open for for anyone who is willing to to jump in, learn about it and start to use it. So tools like Bitcoin, uh, the open source ecosystem is producing so many valuable privacy preserving tools. I mean, Signal is a fantastic, very approachable example of that. And that you just install it, you use it just like iMessage and you're gaining extremely strong privacy that no one, not Signal, not the US government, not anyone else can can break through to read those communications. So it's it's something where even though there is constantly this kind of demoralizing deluge of bad news when it comes to personal privacy, there's also so much optimism because we have amazing tools being built out, improved. We have many, many, many more people waking up to the need for personal privacy. I think we've seen a, a large, a large amount of change in that area with different governments' responses to COVID over the past few years. We saw a lot of people start to think like, what happens if the government decides they want to to close things down, if they want to prevent people from traveling freely, those sorts of things. Um, so I think there are so many reasons for optimism, but I definitely understand that when we talk about all this kind of this demoralizing news, it's easy to to lose heart. But thankfully, we do have tools. I mean, imagine where we'd be if we didn't have open source software, if we didn't right. have privacy tools like Signal, like Tor, like uh, strong VPNs, if we didn't have Bitcoin. If Bitcoin had never been invented. How would we approach the the kind of the economic future that we're looking at right now. It's it's crazy to think where we could be, but where we're not because of these tools and because of the things that we can do with them once we wake up, understand the need for them and just start to use them. We'd have highly inflating cash in our mattresses still like in the past, right? That would, that would be, we'd be, We'd uh, all be gold bugs, gold I guess. Bars, saving yeah. off uh, gold to, to pay for your haircut. That, the that's circular economy. Yeah. yeah, but isn't the, uh, isn't the end game of all this then with the evolution direction the governments are going to central bank digital currency? I mean, if we believe that the money is really the source of all of these the end game for you know all mm -hmm. of this privacy violation then a central bank digital currency has to be a government and central bankers wet dream right oh yeah oh yeah yeah i think that we've already seen many many governments around the world starting to explore them uh, i mean china just like with anything else authoritarian and surveillance oriented is is leading the charge with the digital yuan and, and the ways that they're implementing that and incentivizing citizens to use it even though it sacrifices their their privacy and their control over their money um, and we will absolutely see that within Europe, within the US, I, I would think within the decade at the very latest. Um, so it's something that we will have to come face to face with. And it's something that governments love because it's it's the it's the wet dream of control. You have the ability to not only surveil everything that happens in your citizens' financial interactions from start to finish, every single your your dollar cup of coffee. Well, no, no cup of coffee is a dollar anymore, but your five dollar cup of coffee. Uh, whatever you're buying, they would know exactly when you're buying it, how you're buying it, where you're buying it. And then even worse than that, something we've never seen is they would have the ability to just pull money directly from your account. And it would be the or federal government. Or drop it right in. Yeah. yeah you or, want your or taxes right taken in. out. Want to drop that stimulus, but you can only spend it on shoes and it's got to be by next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They have. They would have so many new levers to to mess with our financial sovereignty that it is, it is pretty terrifying. And it's it's interesting because I think they leverage the success and the the growth of Bitcoin actually as a way to kind of pave the path towards CBDCs because they can sure. 
talk about Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin brings all these bad things, FTX, look at all the problems, but we can do it the right way and we can bring a, oh, a digital currency. the technology is that, great. It's just the yeah. actual asset that's bad. Yeah, we've heard that. Yeah, blockchain, yeah. not Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And that's, I think, something that they'll they'll drive on. But again, it is going to come. I don't know that there's a way we can protect ourselves against like that we can stop it from happening. Um, but again, continuing to use tools like Bitcoin now, pushing hard. I mean, obviously, I think we still have some kind of democratic control in the US. So pushing very hard for laws that at least slow down the spread of CBDCs. We already have states like North Carolina and Florida creating legislation that would ban CBDC usage within the state. Um, so there's some some interesting protection that we can have in the US and, and states' rights play a, an important part of that. But ultimately, it's getting your foot into the circular economy of Bitcoin before CBDCs come, getting used to how it works, getting used to actually using it to buy and sell goods. I think that's another piece where a lot of Bitcoiners just buy and hodl. And I I understand the mentality, but if something like CBDCs come and all your favorite merchants switch to using the CBDC and none of them support Bitcoin, it's not going to be useful to you. Yeah, you, you have to start to embrace this world where Bitcoin is not just a store of value. It is a method of exchange. It is digital cash. And we really need to to lean into that both with on-chain and with Lightning and Bitcoin. Um, so again, there's obviously reasons to be worried, but so much optimism because of the tools that have been built, because of all the amazing people building around Bitcoin, helping to grow and improve it, uh, and all the educators in the space working on it. There's There's a lot of hope for optimism. So where can people follow you after this conversation and hopefully stay updated on all the things we need to do to protect ourselves? Yeah, so the best place for kind of my broad content uh, is probably just Twitter, at Seth for Privacy is my handle there. Um, And then if you want to follow my podcast, which I'm a little bit more intermittent and posting to it uh, at this point, just because I'm busy with with other things, but that's Opt Out is the name of the podcast or at Opt Out Pod on Twitter. Um, and then the majority of my content now is actually coming out through foundation. I'm head of content at foundation where we build Bitcoin centric tools to help you to reclaim your digital sovereignty, help you reclaim your privacy. Uh, and so the vast majority of my content now is going into their blog, going into some, some really exciting things that we're working on to, to help in the, the broader freedom space as well. Um, but that's, that's another good place. Foundationdevices.com is where that, that blog is. You can learn more about us, learn more about what I do there and, and read the blog post that I'm putting out. I'm glad that you're a privacy advocate. You're sharing all this information rather than moving up into the mountains in a small shack <laughs> and keeping your privacy truly, right? Because a lot of uh, people who believe in this stuff aren't going to come on podcasts and show their face and have these conversations. So I think it's very important. Yeah, yeah. I'm, it, I made a, a hard but conscious decision that I was going to show my face. I was going to have a a well-known pseudonym. It's not. I'm not super, super hard on the anonymous side because I think there's there's value in kind of being a bridge to the privacy community and and helping people to see the need and see that real, normal, everyday people with families care about privacy, take steps to to preserve it, and want to help others do the same. So it's definitely something that's important and something that that I hold dear and so thankful for the opportunity to come on a podcast like this and talk about these concepts. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing those very even just practical tips on yeah very basic steps that people hear who run into that wall of, okay, now I care about my privacy. What do I do? I'm glad that now we have a few ideas that uh, you could share. And I think that'll send people properly down the rabbit hole. So thanks once again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Let's do